Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon our study today of Jonah chapter one. We pray that through our conversation, we learn something new about ourselves and about you and about what it means to be faithful in this world. It's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, before we read Jonah chapter one, since this is a new book, I'm just going to kind of tee us up with a few introductory remarks about the book. Uh, and then we'll dive into the text itself. And so right off the bat, this is a strange book in that it focuses on the story of a prophet and not the words of a prophet. Most prophetic books don't tell much about the actual prophet himself and focus on the prophecy, but this is different. This is the story of Jonah's call. And we don't know a lot about Jonah. He shows up in Second Kings when he prophesies in favor of Jeroboam II, a prophecy that that Amos later overturns and confronts Jeroboam for his wickedness. And so basically the only other thing we know about Jonah uh, is that he kind of buddy buddies up with a, a rebellious idolatrous king who worships false gods. And so there's reason to be suspect about Jonah's character from the beginning of this. And aside from a nice moment of authentic prayer in chapter two of the book of Jonah, one of the things you'll discover about Jonah is that he does not really seem like a faithful, morally upright character. Uh, in fact, he can be quite childish and immature. And so this is going to be kind of an interesting story. The book of Jonah, it, it's close to, you know, a genre like modern satire, where you have a lot of stereotype characters who end up doing the exact opposite of what one might expect, right? People would expect a prophet to be faithful to God's ways and obedient to God's voice. Jonah does the opposite. Likewise, one would expect a bloodthirsty, powerful king like the king of Assyria to not repent at the preaching of Jonah, but he does repent. One would expect the pagan sailors to be immoral and kind of shady characters, but they turn out to be a beacon of faithfulness. And so a question we might consider as we read this book is, well, what is God's word saying about the prophet not being faithful, whereas all these pagans we think are really bad turn out to, to listen to God? A key city geographically in the book of Jonah is Nineveh. This is the capital of uh, the Assyrian Empire. They were known for their evil deeds and for acts of injustice. They also conquered the Israelites and were kind of their overlords. And so these really are the enemies of Israel. This is not a, a neutral people that Jonah is sent to. And so right off the bat, as you try to find yourself in this story, you got to think about, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but who is it that you despise? Is there anyone that you detest? You might not say it out loud, but if there is someone or a group of people or a historical figure or what have you, that you really just like, if given the chance, you know, you'd probably do something awful. This is who the Assyrians were to the people of Israel and to Jonah in particular. So Jonah is sent directly to preach repentance to his worst enemy and to proclaim mercy to his worst enemy. You know, some other themes we're going to explore, they're going to be Christological themes. There are a lot of connections between the story of Jesus and the story of Jonah. 
And Jesus at times would reference Jonah. He spoke of the sign of Jonah. There's some parallels, for instance, with the three days and three nights and the belly of the fish, you know, coupled with the three nights and the tomb. Um, And so there's a lot of themes of death and resurrection in Jonah. And one thing to know about the book is that the early church fathers just ate it up. I mean, this was their favorite book. They love to comment on it, to find these connections whatever thriller you're reading at the moment that you just can't put down. If you're someone like Irenaeus in the second century, I mean, all you're doing is reading Jonah. It's the most exciting book to you. And so the early church fathers really, really loved this book. And so I'm going to go ahead and just pause there and I'm going to share my screen and I'm going to ask EV to read chapter one, and then I'll say a few words about it and we'll launch into our conversation. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. 
Thank you, E.B., for that um, beautiful reading. So just a few notes about chapter one. Uh, at the very beginning, this imperative from God comes to Jonah in a single word, go, right? Go at once to Nineveh. And it's not really that different from something that God says to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, you know? Um, go to the land that I will show you. That's that's the imperative when God speaks. God says something similar through Jesus with the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations. And so often the word of the Lord coming to us comes in the imperative, get on your feet, go. I am sending you to a very particular place. And this is a theme in scripture. That place is not the vacation spot that you want to go to. It's not a place of peace and comfort. Uh, we are often sent uh, to a land that we don't know or a people we don't like or into a situation that will require a lot of trust and obedience. And so whenever you hear that imperative from God in scripture, go, it's always something that will require obedience, vulnerability, and courage for someone to obey. And a lot of times in scripture, uh, the prophets do obey. This is one of those moments when the disobedience is hilariously and tragically in your face, right? Because God sends Jonah to Nineveh, the heart of the beast, right? Where the oppressor of Israel lives, the most wicked of all places, a city responsible for really doing damage to Jonah's people. But God says, go there, go to that place you hate, because I have something for you to do there. Now, we don't find this out till the end of the book, but Jonah's one of those books that makes the most sense if we can just kind of know what's happening in advance. The reason Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because he knows that God is merciful, right? So I promise you that if God were sending Jonah to rain down fire and brimstone, if this was going to be a Sodom and Gomorrah moment, I assure you Jonah would go straight there. But because God's intention is to offer mercy, Jonah wants no part of that, and he flees to a place called Tarshish, which is a land that may or may not have you know, existed. It, it could be a mythical land. It, it could be a land that we've forgotten a little bit about, but it's basically as far west as one can go, moving in the opposite direction of where God tells Jonah to go. And because we're going to be playing with some Christological themes, you know, we want to see this as the opposite of where Jesus is going, right? Because Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is going into the heart of the Roman Empire. Jesus is going into the belly of the beast to be slaughtered by that beast so that God's mercy might come upon them, right? But here Jonah is, going in the opposite direction, trying to get away. We're told in verse three that he pays his own fare and chooses his own ship. We can see that as a, as a metaphor for really just trying to get by on his own resources, his own thinking, and not wanting to be obedient. Now, as we know, this is not going to go very well. Jonah's plan is not going to work out the way he wants it to work out. The very idea that a prophet can hide from God is really a joke. I mean, imagine trying to play hide-and-go-seek in a phone booth with Sherlock Holmes. I mean, you're just not going to be very successful. That's kind of what it's like to run from God. And so there's an element of, of, of comedy and tragedy at the very beginning, Jonah thinks he can run away from God, and the reader knows that this is going to be a failed endeavor. And 
sure enough, right when he gets on the ship, a hurricane, I mean, this is really a hurricane that is sent, is about to break the ship up. Uh, the sailors all cry to their God. Um, the author goes out of his way to emphasize that these are pagan sailors. Verse five, each cried to his God. And I say that because by the end of this chapter, they are offering sacrifices to the Lord, to Adonai, right? So there is a conversion that takes place in the life of these sailors. And this prophet has a role in that, but their conversion happens in spite of Jonah, not because of him. And so already a statement is being made about how God can and will work outside uh, of his chosen people if they are not obedient. So that's just something to think about. God's going to get his way. The world will come to know God one way or another, and Jonah is not going to thwart that plan. Uh, during the storm, Jonah is asleep. And uh, immediately, you know, we can think about Jesus being asleep in a boat. Uh, there's a story of that in Mark chapter four. And people come to Jesus when he is asleep and say, get up. Don't you know that we're about to drown? And, and Jesus stands up and commands the hurricane to stop because he has authority over nature. But the question is, in the gospel, why is Jesus asleep? And Jesus is asleep because he's at peace, because he trusts God, because he's right where he needs to be. Jonah's sleep is different. Jonah's sleep is a metaphor for being asleep to his own life. He is asleep to the purposes of God. He is asleep to being the prophet God calls him to be, right? So he's just kind of going numb during all this. But the sailors get him up and they cast lots because they want to know whose fault this is. And that gives you a, a window into Jonah's world and how people thought. Uh, the lot falls on Jonah, and they basically ask him, who are you? And in verse 9, Jonah gives a very eloquent, impressive speech. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. And, you know, this is revealed as being a bunch of baloney, right? Because here Jonah is saying he worships the Lord who made the sea, and yet he is trying to flee by sea away from the presence of the Lord. And so there is a, a discrepancy between what Jonah says and what Jonah does. Uh, this is going to show up in a big way when we look at his prayer next week from the belly of the fish, when Jonah offers this beautiful prayer from the belly of the fish about how those who worship vain idols will fall into unhappiness and how he is committing his life to God. But of course, the moment he gets out of the belly of the fish, Jonah reverts back to his selfish behavior. And so let's not see in this speech from Jonah a real uh, sincerity, because throughout this book, there's going to be a discrepancy between what Jonah says and what Jonah does. But the sailors ask him, what should we do with you? And Jonah says, well, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down. Please do not be tempted to read this as Jonah you know, sacrificing his life or being selfless. We don't actually know what Jonah's intentions are here, but I see this as Jonah continuing to be selfish. What better way to avoid the call of God than to drown yourself in a hurricane? And the other thing I want to point out is that in the worldview of the ancient kind of world, the reason the sailors pray, do not make us guilty of innocent blood, 
is that it would have been believed that they would have been guilty for Jonah's blood. And so here Jonah is basically putting his blood on their hands and also trying to continue to obey the call of God by going into the ocean. But nevertheless, it works. Verse 15, they pick Jonah up, they throw him into the sea, and the sea ceases from its raging. And then in verse 16, we're told that the sailors now fear the Lord and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord and make vows, which is language that basically says they are worshiping God in the correct way. And so at the beginning of this chapter, they're worshiping their own pagan God, but a conversion has taken place in their life, and they now know the God of Israel. What has Jonah contributed to that? Absolutely nothing, right? So here God is at work outside of the prophet's faithfulness. But does God let Jonah drown? No, he does not. In verse 17, the Lord provides a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah is in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And of course, the early church fathers just loved reading three days and three nights and spent tons of time, you know, seeing the belly of the fish as akin to a, a watery tomb, right, where the body of Jesus was held and did lots of work on how the, the sea was kind of like baptism and, and did a lot of analogies here. I guess the question is, is this large fish uh, an act of mercy on God's part? I think certainly so. And, and I think what I like about it is that, you know, God loves Jonah too much to give up on him, right? And so the same mercy, the same pursuit that God has for the people of Nineveh, like I'm not going to give up on them. God does not abandon Jonah. You know, Jonah wants to die. Jonah wants to drown. Jonah wants to run away and go to Tarshish. And God says, one way or another, if I have to send a hurricane and a fish, I'm going to get you, right? And I think that this is a way of speaking to God's pursuit of us. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get you. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to keep pursuing you. Uh, I'm going to treat you the way that I treat everybody. I'm going to continue to reach out in love. But at some point, Jonah does have to consent, right? And so the question of the book becomes, will Jonah ever consent and submit to God's pursuit, not just of him, but of the very people he hates.